Luke chapter 7, we're going to begin looking at a series of miracles that Luke relates to us over the course of the next couple of chapters. Luke is taking us on a journey. Back in Luke 5, verse 20, Jesus declared to a paralytic man who came to him for healing that his sins were forgiven. And from that time, the Jewish leadership who wondered about Jesus are now actively working against Jesus. They, they were no longer coming around and watching what Jesus was doing to investigate him. They were purposefully working to antagonize him. But what happens after that point when Jesus even says to them, why are you thinking in your hearts the way you're thinking? You're thinking only God can forgive sins, which was right. But they went beyond that and thought, this man speaks blasphemy. And the problem was that they saw Jesus only as a man. And so he's going to begin to prove by his words and his works, he's more than man. Even right there, he said, what's easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say arise and walk and then it happened? And so he said it and the man stood up and walked and all who were around glorified God because they'd never seen anything quite like it. And then Luke takes us into the Sermon on the Plain where Jesus presents what we refer to as God's kingdom agenda. And what it is that God wants of those of us who are not only believers in Jesus Christ, but followers of Christ. And the implications that will show up in our lives when we truly follow Jesus. But now in chapters 7 and 8, we see two sets of similar miracles. In Luke 7, a, a man is healed... And then a young man is raised to life. In Luke chapter 8, a woman is healed. And then a young woman is raised to life. In two of the four, one in chapter 7, one in chapter 8, the person being healed did not come seeking healing for themselves, but someone came on their behalf to intercede for them. But through all of these... They highlight the authority of Jesus. The power of Jesus. Luke is building a case for the one who said, Son, your sins are forgiven. Luke is building a case that he truly had the authority to forgive sin. And that comes out especially here in Luke 7, verses 1 through 10. Read it with me, would you? Follow along as I read aloud in Luke 7, 1 through 10. Now, when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered. And a certain centurion servant, who was dear unto him, was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. 
And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. And when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, For I am not worthy that thou shouldst enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I am also a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, go, and he goeth. And to another, come, and he cometh. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, He marveled at him and turned him about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. And they that were sent returning to the house found the servant whole that had been sick. The text focuses on the interaction between Jesus and this centurion, even though they never met. And through the reports of four individuals or groups listed here in this text, the interaction reveals something important to us about God's interaction with humanity. Jesus was the express image of God, wasn't he? If you want to know what God the Father is like, you don't need to look any further than God the Son. You look at Jesus and you see what God is like, what the Father is like. Jesus, as he interacts here in Luke chapter 7, he he demonstrates to us the way that God interacts with man. And we'll see that through four reports from individuals and groups found here in this text. If you would, see with me, first of all, Luke's report. Luke, the penman of Luke and Acts, is the one who who is sharing this account with us, and he opens this account by just giving us commentary before he gets into the details of what actually took place. He tells us that Jesus taught on the plain and then returned to Capernaum. And as soon as he returned to Capernaum, A need of an individual was brought to his attention. Not by the individual who had the need, but by the one who interceded for him. And it's that person, not the person with the need, who's the focus of this account. He's a centurion. See, if you would, his class in the service. These are the characteristics of this, this one who's sent for help. His class in the service. The Bible tells us he was a centurion. That should tell you a couple of things very quickly. This man is not a Jew. He's a Roman soldier stationed at or near Capernaum with a number of auxiliary troops under him, and they are acting there under the authority of Herod Antipas who was the ruler of Perea and Galilee under, of course, ultimately the Roman emperor. He's part of the occupying force of the military of Rome. 
Notice, if you will, then, his compassion for the servant. He sent to Jesus because he had a servant who was sick. And the Bible tells us specifically there in verse number 2 that this servant was dear unto him. That is a short phrase that you might just jump over very quickly, but it is a telling statement. Under Roman law, the life of the servant or the slave was completely in the master's hand. If a servant or a slave became too old or too incapacitated to fulfill his responsibilities, the master had the right to kill the servant. The Bible tells us here that the servant was sent unto death. Matthew's account that we read in Matthew chapter 8 tells us he was paralyzed. Perhaps some sort of accident happened even while he was about his duties that left him in a state where he was paralyzed, he was incapacitated, and it was leading to his death. Maybe an infection had set in from whatever the injury was, and he was dying. That master, that Roman centurion could have just said, okay, well, let's put him out of his misery. I'll go get another servant. But this servant was dear unto him. The word dear in this text is the Greek word entomos, and it means valuable, precious, honored, or of high status. The centurion looked upon his servant with compassion. He had the man given right to take his life. But the centurion's attitude and actions contrasted with what his man-given right was. And can I remind you just simply this morning as we we pass by Luke's report, that having a man-given right to do something does not make it right. Humans can, human organizations, political organizations can say that something is right, that you have the right to do it. And sometimes we may even excuse our behavior by saying, well, I have the right to do this. Friends, having the right to do something does not make it right to do. This centurion had compassion on his servant There's a lesson here for us in valuing others. Regardless of status or race, as someone made in God's image, every other person that you interact with, that you rub shoulders with, that you see in the community, that that you see on television or, or in news articles, Wherever it is that you might rub shoulders with the rest of the human race, friends, can I remind you today that every single man, woman, and child is valued because he or she is made in the image of God. And that is the way that you and I should see others. No matter their status in life, no matter their race, no matter what they may claim for themselves as far as identity, every person should be looked on with compassion as someone who is valuable because they're made in the image of God. Notice, if you will, thirdly, his call for the Savior. Matthew's account 
if you remember from our reading earlier, showed the centurion himself coming to Jesus. Luke tells us that the centurion and Jesus never met, that the centurion sent first Jewish elders to Jesus and then sent friends to Jesus. So which is correct? Well, both are. You say, Pastor, how can that be? Simple. Let me illustrate it for you. I have now five children. And if I sent one of them, I'll pick one, if I sent my oldest, Brooklyn, and told her she needed to take my word, my message, to her younger siblings and tell them they needed to get cleaned up for dinner. If Brooklyn goes and tells her younger siblings, you need to get cleaned up for dinner, can I ask you, in whose authority is she giving that message? Mine. She's not giving the message in her own authority. She's giving it in daddy's authority. And if her siblings start to fight back, you know what Brooklyn would say, don't you? If they said, no, we're not going to get cleaned up. No, we're not going to do that. Brooklyn would say, well, that's what daddy said. And now that puts the message on a whole nother level. Hey, by the way, there's a biblical example of this. The gospel accounts tell us when Jesus went before Pilate, and Pilate commanded that he was to be scourged, the Bible tells us that he, Pilate, scourged Jesus. Did Pilate actually take that cat of nine tails and go down into the courtyard and himself physically scourge Jesus? No, but it happened on his authority. So when Matthew tells us that the centurion came to Jesus, that is just a way of saying that in his authority, those that Luke tells us about came to Jesus for the centurion. But can I ask you, are you shocked that a Roman centurion would seek out a Jewish rabbi? I mean, even if you know little of the scriptures, you would understand that this seems crazy. That, that this is not something that would happen. He is a part of that Roman occupying force judah and and israel are a conquered land the jews are a conquered people the the roman soldier the centurion is there to keep the peace and to make sure that rebellions don't spring up he come to this land with his own polytheistic religion and yet when his servant was sick to the point of death, having heard of and perhaps even witnessed Jesus himself, he called for Jesus. The New Testament has other reports of centurions who responded to the Jewish religion or Jesus positively. Do you remember the centurion who oversaw Jesus' crucifixion? He was involved as the soldiers carried out Pilate's order at the behest of the Jewish people to lay Jesus on the cross, to nail him to the tree, to raise it up into place. He was there as they cast lots over Jesus' raiment. He was there as, as the command was given to, to spear Jesus' side to be sure he was dead. He had heard the statements that Jesus made. He heard the conversation between Jesus and, and the thieves on, other si on either side as one of them placed his faith in Christ and said, remember me when you come 
come into your kingdom. He had heard as Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He had seen and heard it all. And when Jesus said, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit and lowered his head and died. And then an earthquake took place. The rocks rent graves around Jerusalem opened up and dead people walked out of them. The veil in the temple was torn in two. And according to Luke's gospel, that centurion said in chapter 23, verse 47, certainly this was a righteous man. Matthew's gospel carries it a little further and says that, that he said, truly this is the Son of God. In the book of Acts, chapter number 10, Another centurion named Cornelius was one that the Bible says in Acts 10 verse 2 was a devout man, one who feared God with all his house, who gave many charitable gifts to the people and always prayed to God. Through his time stationed around God's people, he came to be known as what, what the New Testament refers to as God-fearers. These are non-Jews who were attracted to the Jewish religion, who began to fear God, though they did not convert completely to Judaism. They didn't undergo circumcision and all of those ritual things. Cornelius was one of those. And to him, God sent Peter, said, go to the house of one Cornelius. He fears me. Go and tell him about Jesus. This centurion here in Luke chapter 7 is like them, and what we see happening over and over again. Luke, as he pens this book that bears his name in Acts, in the book of Acts, he demonstrates God's love for all the lost. Friends, can I remind you this morning that God loves all the lost. God loves all the lost. There is not one whom God does not love. He loves them all. Would you notice with me secondly this morning, not only Luke's report, but look at the elder's report. After introducing the context, Luke relates now the account of the details. In his account... The centurion heard Jesus was in town and sent Jewish elders to Jesus with his request. We'll see why the Jewish elders did this a little later in the text. But they were happy to come to Jesus on behalf of the centurion. And it wasn't because they were threatened. You might think, well, maybe the centurion told them, you go get your rabbi, this one who does all these miracles, or I'm going to take it out on you. No, they weren't threatened to come. They were honored to come. And notice their approach to Jesus. The Bible tells us in verse number 4, they besought him instantly. Another appropriate way to translate that phrase is they begged him insistently. They came to Jesus begging on behalf of the centurion. In the Greek text, this is in the perfect tense and what that means for us is that the writer is writing about something that started and ended in the past, but in the intervening space of time, it was continuous. And so here's what happened. The Jewish elders showed up before Jesus. 
They told him about the centurion, his servant who was sick. They begged him to come. And they kept on begging. They kept saying, Jesus, you need to come. Jesus, you need to come and do this for the centurion. Jesus, you need to come and heal this man. Jesus, don't delay. Jesus, don't put it off. Don't don't do something else. You need to come. They kept on begging until they stopped. Well, what stopped them? Look at verse number six. The answer is there. What's it say? Then Jesus went with They kept at it until Jesus responded. Friends, we can learn from their insistence. Have there been times in your life where you've sought God for something and you gave up before he responded? You ever been there? You ever asked God to do something to work? To answer a prayer that you have and then given up on it before God even gave an answer at least an answer that you saw or that you knew God had answered let's learn from their insistence notice if you would their appeal to Jesus why would Jude, Jewish elders acquiesce to the request of a Roman centurion. What was the, what was the major attitude, the prevailing attitude of the day about, uh, from the Jews about the Romans? Yeah. They weren't in love with the Romans. They didn't like having the Romans around. The sentiment, for the most part, among the average Jewish person was, we need to cleanse the land of the Romans. They need to go. Their belief of the Messiah revealed that didn't it they thought the messiah was going to show up and do what get rid of the romans and yet we find jewish elders of capernaum coming to jesus on behalf of a roman centurion that's shocking but why did they do it they weren't threatened they were honored to because in verse number four they said that the centurion was what Worthy. He's worthy. What made him worthy? Notice if you will, their account to Jesus. They're going to account, give reasons for why they think he's worthy. In verse number four, they continue, for he loves our nation and he has built us a synagogue. He loves us. He built us a synagogue. Whether that means out of his own funds, or he gave even some of the soldiers to participate in the construction work. He built us a synagogue, a place for us to gather and worship our God. And so he's worthy. He's worthy that you should do this for him. Isn't that just like humanity? Pastor, what do you mean by that? We often struggle with the idea that God must show favor based on human merit. Isn't that true? Have you ever heard this question? It turns it around a little bit, but why do bad things happen to what? Good people. 
We may not hear the question as often, but it shows up in Scripture. We flip it around and we could say this, why do good things happen to bad people? Do you know what those questions identify? Our natural thinking that God's favor has to be based on human merit. Jesus, you should do this for him because he's worthy. Friends, can I remind you that God's favor is not merit-based. It's grace-based. God's favor is not out due to merit, earning and deserving it. God's favor is poured out based on grace. And, and should there be someone who would say, well, that's not fair, that's not just, can I tell you that if we got from God what we deserved, none of us would get much of anything good. Because we don't deserve anything from a holy, righteous, completely set apart from sin God. And yet God constantly pours love and goodness out on humanity. Why? Because it's based on grace. I read this true story, and it's lengthy, but I want you to hear it. It illustrates perfectly God's grace. It's written by a man who's in ministry who adopted a young girl who had been previously adopted when the adopted family decided not to keep her any longer. Her adoptive family would take a yearly trip to Disney World. But for whatever reason, that adoptive family, her first adoptive family, would take their biological children and always leave her behind. And this taught this young girl who was eight at the time that the account happens that for some reason she wasn't good enough. And so when the new adopted family, the, the dad, the husband, the one writing the account, was going to make a trip to Florida for a ministry event, he decided that while they were there, they were going to go to Disney World. Starting about a month out, the adopted daughter started showing some very bad behavior. Saying very unkind things to the siblings. Lying about things that, when it would have actually been easier just to tell the truth. Rebelling. And they couldn't understand it until... Just days leading up to the trip, dad sat down with the eight-year-old adopted daughter and... And spoke with her about her behavior. And this is how she responded. She said, I know what you're going to do. You're not going to take me to Disney World, are you? And he writes, the thought hadn't actually crossed my mind. But her downward spiral suddenly started to make sense. She knew she couldn't earn her way into the magic kingdom. She had tried and failed that test many times before, so she was living in a way that placed her as far as possible from the most magical place on earth. 
He says, in retrospect, I'm embarrassed to admit that in that moment I was tempted to turn her fear to my own advantage. The easiest response would have been, if you don't start behaving better, you're right, we won't take you. But by God's grace, I didn't. Instead, I asked her, is this trip something we're doing as a family? She nodded, brown eyes wide and tear-rimmed. Are you part of this family? She nodded again. Then you're going with us. Sure, there may be consequences to help you remember what's right from what's wrong, but you're part of the family and we're not leaving you behind. And then he writes, I'd like to say that her behavior improved, but it didn't. She continued to misbehave. But then they made their trip to Florida, and even as they were stopping in hotels along the way, there were, there were problems with her behavior. But then after the first time at Disney, he says overpriced tickets, overpriced meals, lots of lines, probably true. He said, in our hotel room that evening, a very different child emerged. She was exhausted, pensive, and a little weepy at times, but her month-long facade of rebellion had faded. When bedtime rolled around, I prayed with her, held her, and asked, so how was your first day at Disney World? And listen, she closed her eyes and snuggled down into her stuffed unicorn. After a few moments, she opened her eyes ever so slightly Daddy, she said, I finally got to go to Disney World. But it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. That's grace. And friends, should you ever be tempted to think that God owes you anything because of merit, can I remind you today that God doesn't give his favor dependent on merit. He gives his favor out of grace. Giving you and I so much that we don't deserve. That's the message of grace. Grace isn't a favor you can achieve by being good. It's a gift you receive because of God's love. Grace is God's goodness that comes looking for you when you have nothing, done nothing but turned away from him. It's that farmer who paid the full day wages to a crew of deadbeat day laborers who only showed up at the last hour of the day. It's the man marrying an abandoned woman and then refusing to forsake his covenant with her even when she turned out to be a harlot. It's the insanity of the shepherd who put 99 sheep aside to go out and search for the one that was lost. It's the love of the father that waiting day after day after day who when the prodigal finally showed up having squandered his inheritance gave him the best that he had because he loved him it's one way love calls it's a one way love that calls you into the kingdom not because you've been good but because by God's grace he chooses you and makes you his own
That's grace. And so the message titled this morning, if you had seen it earlier, was not worthy. The message is unworthy. Because we're all unworthy. In fact, the centurion would say that about himself. Notice, if you would, now the centurion's report. Jesus makes his way to the house, and the centurion hears that he's coming. He's nearing the house, and he sends another group now to go to Jesus. And notice his abasement. The Jews declared he is worthy. And not once, but twice in his message to Jesus, the centurion said, no, I'm not. I'm not worthy that you should come to me. I'm not worthy that you should enter my house. I'm not worthy that you should do this for me. The view of one who recognizes his own unworthiness, that receiving God's favor is not about merit, but about grace. And by the way, faith and humility go hand in hand. Spurgeon said it this way, your faith will not murder your humility. Your humility will not but your faith, but the two will go hand in hand to heaven like a brave brother and a fair sister. The one bold as a lion, the other meek as a dove. The one rejoicing in Jesus, the other blushing itself. Notice his acknowledgement. The centurion identified something about his understanding of authority. He exhibits that here. He says, I'm one under authority. I say unto the soldier, go, and he goes to my servant, do this, and he does it. What was he indicating? He had authority given to him. And that authority enabled him to command and for it to be done. In saying this, he said to Jesus, I recognize your authority. And I, I know you can speak the word. And you don't even have to be here. You can speak the word and my servant will be healed. You can heal him from near or a distance. In that way, he recognized and responded to the authority, the power of Jesus. Do you recognize and respond to the authority and power of Jesus in your life? You may not have the power and authority over sickness. You may not have the power and authority over mental well-being. You may not have the power and authority over circumstances, over spiritual troubles and doubts that you face in your life, but Jesus does. There is nothing in your life that you face, that you struggle with, that's a difficulty to you, that Jesus does not have the authority and the power to deal with. The question is, not does Jesus have that authority and power, the question is, do we respond and recognize to it? Do you remember what Matthew's account told us Jesus said? As you have faith, so be it unto you. And what happened? Matthew records for us the servant was, was healed in that same hour. Well, what does that tell you about the centurion's faith? He believed 
his servant could be healed by Jesus in that very hour. And friends, can I, can I tell you this morning that God, God has his plan and his purpose. He's going to do his will. But what he calls for you and I to do in the midst of our difficulties, troubles, and doubts is to believe him. To trust him. And there will be times in your life and in mine when God responds to our faith in that miraculous healing way in the very hour. Do we believe that he can do that? Do we believe that he would do it for us? Do we really believe if you're going through something today that in this very hour, if Jesus were to stretch forth his hand or say the word, he would heal by his authority and power and you would be healed? Do you believe he can do that? He can. He does. He would. And then finally, I want you to notice Jesus' report. In verses 9 and 10, I want to read the verses again. The Bible declares to us when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned him to those that followed him and said, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith no, not in Israel. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. Notice, if you would, the declaration of faith. Jesus recognized the centurion's words and actions as an expression of his faith in Jesus. Why did he send the Jewish elders? Why did he send friends? Why did he admit his own unworthiness? Why did he acknowledge the authority that Jesus had? Because he believed Jesus. He believed that Jesus could do for his servant exactly what he asked him to do. Jesus, you don't need to be here. You don't need to be physically present at my house. You can speak the word from wherever you are, and my servant will be healed in this very moment. And Jesus did it. And can I remind you today to remember that faith, authentic faith, is always revealed in words and actions. If you and I believe God, that belief will be exemplified in words and actions like it was with this centurion. But I want you to notice something, even in that. The Bible does not tell us that Jesus marveled that the centurion loved Israel, that he built the synagogue. That's what the Jews were ecstatic about. Jesus, see, he's worthy because he loves Israel, because he built us a synagogue. That doesn't faze Jesus one bit. But what Jesus did marvel at was what? 
his faith. His faith. His faith. He marveled at how this man believed. But then I want you to see that Jesus used that as a teaching moment, didn't he? Not only do we see the declaration of faith, but notice, if you will, the deficiency of faith. What did Jesus say when he turned to those who followed him? I've not found so great faith. Look at the faith of this centurion. But I've not found that in Israel. In Matthew's account, Jesus goes on and he makes those statements about there's coming a day when many from the north, the south, and the east, and the west will be gathered together and will sit down and eat with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. What was that all about? Jesus is attacking the Jewish belief that only Jews could be a part of God's family, eternal family. Jesus is saying, no, that's, that's not what God's plan is about. God's plan is to bring everyone, to give everyone an opportunity to come to him and be part of his family and someday at that great marriage supper of the lamb can you imagine the banquet hall as we all sit down to feast with brothers and sisters in christ from throughout history from every nation every kingdom every tribe every tongue and jesus himself sits at the head of the table what a day that will be but then jesus said but the children, they're going to be cast out. A deficiency of faith. We could apply that multiple ways. We could apply that to salvation. Friends, can I remind you today? God's favor isn't merit-based. You might think today that you earn your way to God by doing good by being a part of a church, by getting baptized, by doing your charitable deeds day after day, by loving God's people, or by building a synagogue for someone, or you put it in your context what your good deeds are, volunteering at, at different organizations, or doing a do good turn to your neighbor who definitely doesn't deserve it. But that doesn't earn you anything with God. His merit is about grace. For by grace are ye saved through faith. So if you want to be a child of God on your way to heaven, it's about faith in Jesus Christ. But then can I also speak to those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ? Because if we're honest, we can struggle with faith. You've heard me say it before. We trust God with our eternal salvation, but we, we struggle to trust him for day-to-day -day life. Why do you suppose both Old and New Testament alike said these words, the just shall live by faith? Paul said, we walk not by sight, but we walk by faith. 
how appalling it is when an unbeliever, if you will, has more faith than a believer. You say, Pastor, what do you mean by that? Have you ever known, I know I've, I've heard it, I've seen it, someone who is not a follower of Jesus, who doesn't claim faith in Jesus or even in God, will make some statement to this effect. Well, isn't your God big enough? Isn't your God powerful enough? Almost as if that person believes God for more than you do, than I do. And that's unfortunate. God should be biggest, most powerful, most good, most authority to those of us who know and follow him. Yes, there are going to be times where you may struggle. You don't see what he's doing like Job. You look up, down, all around, and you don't see him. You don't see his hand. But as we've been reminded again and again, when you can't see God's hand, you can trust his heart. Put your faith in him. Today, if you're here and and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, can I tell you today that you need to understand that God does not owe you anything. It doesn't matter how good and how moral you are. God doesn't owe you anything, but he offers you so much through his son, Jesus Christ. Simply believe him. Child of God, trust God. His grace and his goodness, not your merit, your goodness, but his as you walk through this life. Trust Him.